do want to welcome you. You've heard a lot already, so my goal, I guess, is to preach closer to 20 minutes and not have it seem like two hours. That's my goal. <laughs> but I always like to preach in context. So where, where, where have we been, right? So last week was Easter. That actually probably seems like an eternity ago. But last week was Easter, and, and Clayton preached a wonderful message about just really the realities of what Easter represents, some of which, I mean, yeah, we all understand the popular culture aspect of Easter, and there's a lot to it. A key obvious point of Easter is that he is risen. He is alive. And he's coming back. He came more like a lamb. It's not coming back that way. We know that. And what Clayton preached last week was about the reality that he left, right? He ascended, and he gave us a task. And he's coming back, and every knee will bow. We know that. This is all well-established facts. Whether we agree with it or not, whether we like it or not, these are all true. But he's coming back. But he gave us a task, and we all know this task. And I want to talk about this task because I believe it is just part of something we just have to grapple with it. We can't ignore it. Well, we actually can choose to ignore it. It's not advisable. But we have to grapple with it. And I'm going to read some scriptures to start. Jesus left. But before he left, he gave us a commission. We all know this. Matthew 28, verse 18. The Great Commission. And it goes like this. This is not new to you. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Absorb that, please. Very important. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is a lot there. My intent is not actually to really grapple with it. All it is to say in recognition of the reality of church life. I've been, I grew up in the church. I've been in the church for many years. The Great Commission, everybody knows it. Everybody in some sense believes it. But it's, it's almost too big. Too big. It's intended for the church universal. It's for something for the church in its entirety to accomplish here on earth. To fulfill as a precursor for Jesus to come back. So I say that just to acknowledge the fact that sometimes it's just hard to know what to do with that on an individual church basis and most certainly from an individual basis. But we accept it implicitly. We just don't know what to do with it. We carry an individual responsibility. And I want to talk about that because we have to find something that we can digest, something that we can take in our daily lives, something to take a personal responsibility in, and it's really hard to do that from the Great Commission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 70. I'm going to read from my Bible here. My actual, I have it printed out here, but I've got new lenses. These are progressive lenses. I'm very excited. Not because I'm getting older, but because I, get, I haven't been able to read from my Bible, so I'm going to try. And if I just go to my notes, you'll know that it's not working. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. However you feel about the Great Commission in its difficulty in being digestible for you personally, and I know you've heard this before, but you personally, and the, as part of the church, have a ministry. One of the difficult things about church is that we have a very bad concept of what ministry means, because you can have ministry leaders, people in ministry, and yeah, we have the church. And somehow, some way, it has been a poorly communicated that the church, in and of themselves, on an individual basis, don't particularly see as a first calling that they have a ministry. Oh, I attend church, that's true. But me having a ministry, not so much. Because I see the people doing the ministry, some of which are up front, some of the people laying hands, some of the people doing this. But it's not something that I internalize. But it's right there. However you feel about your faith and however you feel about your personal walk with God, he has given you a ministry. And that ministry is one of reconciliation for people to enable people to become reconciled to God. And that encompasses pretty much everything that goes wrong in a person's life that is not in accordance with God's plan. And you get to play a role to actually make that right. That's reconciliation. You know when you're not reconciled with somebody. You know the issues that are literally come with that. You know the problems that it represents and creates. And you know the joy of when reconciliation happens. All the things that people carry on a daily basis, the, the thoughts that they hear, literally hear in their head, are the accusation, the condemnation. When they become reconciled, gone. And peace enters in. And they can breathe. The ministry of reconciliation sounds big and it's progressive and it's step by step, but to bring people to the point of reconciliation with their creator, with their father in heaven, never trivialize that. It is life unto people. It is life eternal. It is life eternal in the sense that they will know God because they can walk with him freely. And that always has been the original intent, to bring people back to that place where they can walk with God in peace, reconciled. That's your ministry. Still too much, isn't it? Still too much. Too big. What do I do with that? I'm going to keep drilling down here. Oh, 20 minutes. I'm trying. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to read it from the NIV, and then Andrew's going to be queued up with the, with the amplified version. But this is what it says. We have to bring it to you in a, in a place that is digestible for you. And it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What a quaint verse. That's quaint. We read it at this level and we say, hmm, I'm God's workmanship, check, like that. He created me, good, nice. He's prepared good works for me to do, ooh, I like that. He prepared them in advance. Not sure if I totally understand that part, but I like the concept. All right, 
I like the Amplified Version for many things, one of which is very simple. All the Amplified Bible is, you take all the definitions of the Hebrew and Greek words, and you just stuff it in, and you get one big verse, and it's just, it's just big. That's what it is. So Amplified Version. Let's go, Andrew. Here we go. For we are his workmanship, his own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which he set so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. That's a little bit better than the NIV, I think. <laughs> and I love the NIV. But you read that, and it becomes a little bit more tangible. Why? Because there's a couple of points that the general church misses, me being one of them. I am part of the church. When I read this in the Amplified, one of the things that just jumped out at me and said, screamed at me, is like, there, you need to understand that, and you need to communicate that, which is this. You are a unique work of art. He created you. Yeah, we get that. Not only did he created you, he fashioned you. He's literally shaped you, sculpted you, whatever word you want to use, and you are unique. You are a work of art. And the problem is, we don't believe that. How can I say that? I talk to people. I talk to me. And we don't believe that. You are a work of art. And not only that, why are you a unique work of art? Because there is a specific task that God has designed these good works for you to fulfill. Specific tasks require a specific solution. You. That's you. And I'm just reading the Bible. Now this, this is a little bit more digestible now, isn't it? This is not, ooh, great commission. Ooh, ministry of reconciliation. No, 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 no. Now this is you. We're just talking about you now. You can argue a lot of things. You can argue, you can tell me a lot of problems you have, a lot of issues that you have that other people don't have. A lot of ways that you didn't start as far along as other people. You can tell me all of that, and you're going to have to tell me and convince me why that verse is wrong. Because it's not. Because all that encompasses is basically to say that you have been formed in a very specific fashion, given tools and gifts in a very specific set for a purpose. It's not random. Never has. You shortchange God you diminish his very design if you want to argue otherwise. Don't do it. So we have a problem. That's what the word says, but we're not doing it. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. This is all scriptures we know. They might even be teaching this in the children's church right now. The body is a unit. Yeah, I sort of is. Unity is kind of nice when you see it. Not so easy to actually acquire. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all, the parts, all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Now there's more, and we all know that. But let me just stop there, because there's a point to be made. It's basically repeated twice. That the foot should say, I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. And the eye would say, or the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Now, I could get into the specific reasons of why a foot or an ear would say such a thing. But the fact is, it's there. Twice. I take it as being a point of emphasis, personally. And I don't even take this so much as a criticism other than to say, this is the reality of an issue in the church. I'm not criticizing anybody, but I love the fact that the Bible being so practical is basically laying out, these are some of the issues you have to deal with because people are going to think that. People are going to adopt that as kind of their worldview of their position in church. Well, I'm not like that, so you know, I'm not... This is kind of real. I don't know about you. I've probably said that more than a few times. So in a sense, I could say I'm biblical. I'm just saying, I'm thinking what the Bible says. I know you get my thing, right? So here's the issue. The Bible points it out twice for emphasis. I see it in my experience and in my own personal life, so I adopt that as a truism in the church, and that's a problem. And the issue becomes that you actually have the ministry, the reconcilers, the one uniquely gifted, the works of art, sidelining themselves. I'd like to think I can think logically, and when I think logically and I just put all that I went through already and put it together, that's my conclusion. That you, sitting right there, a uniquely, particularly fashioned work of art designed specifically for a task at hand, could possibly say, well, I'm not that other guy, so I'm just going to sit. That ministry model, if it exists and persists, is broken. It's broken. And my job is to recognize that and somehow work to fix it. This is not judgment. I love the fact that the Bible points it out because that gives us an opportunity to just recognize it and deal with it. So here's some problems. Template thinking. This is, what, this is the way I describe it. Template thinking. There's a lot of ministry people that we see, a lot of ministry people with profile, and it's a pretty natural thing. I've done it myself. I said, man, I wish I could do that. Look at, look at the impact. Mm, man, I want to do that. That's awesome. That's template thinking. Right? 
There's a corollary to that, which is equally as bad, is the ones that are doing it think, man, I want everybody to like, man, I could really like help people basically be me. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because yeah, you know. That's just as bad. That's just as bad. Now, I don't think anybody would want to be like me, personally. I don't think you have too, I, I don't think it'd be helpful to have too many people like me around. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest, right? But let's just say I were successful, right? And I would say, man, you know, look at my success, man. It'd be great if I could duplicate myself and have a lot more mini-me's. Yeah, that would be bad. Bad idea. It's equally bad as us, somebody to say, I want to be like him. It's just as bad because it's a template thinking. There is a ministry that if you do not embrace, you've, ne you've literally neglected it, and we can't allow that to continue. All right, now, just a little bit of fun. I went golfing in Myrtle Beach. Uh, not Myrtle Beach, in Charleston. I did not play well. Maybe that's why I misnamed the place. Anyway, so I I've, I've thought about golfing just a little bit, but anyway... I was preparing for this sermon, and I thought about this gentleman right here. This is one of the most famous golf photos that exists. The gentleman in the picture is named Ben Hogan. And it's, it's literally an iconic photo, and some of the backstory is just fascinating. But some of the backstory for him personally is that this is the first tournament after he was in a car accident. And the doctor said he would never play again. 16 months after his car accident with his wife, he played 36 holes this day. This was his 36th hole. He almost quit on hole 12 because he couldn't, he literally was almost collapsing. He, when, when the ball's on the green, they would typically mark the ball. He couldn't do it. So his, his playing partner actually did it for him. But he gutted it out, 36 holes. And the 36th hole, he needed to get a par to get into the playoff for the Monday. It's a 460-yard par four. And the reason why this photo is iconic, that's a one iron that he's hitting. If you know anything about golf, a one iron is an almost impossible club to hit, which is why Lee Trevino said, if you're in a thunderstorm, who Lee Trevino was struck by lightning, he said, hold up a one iron, because even God can't hit it. <laughs> that's Lee Trevino. So it's, there's a lot of folklore in this photo. Interesting enough, as I said, there's just just a fascinating, this was like a pinnacle moment. And you just look at the photo, it's so captivating because it's just the essence of it is so pure in his form. The photographer that took this photo, it was interesting enough, he followed Ben Hogan. He was an eccentric photographer, not that all photographers are eccentric. Dave, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> he, the photographer, followed Ben Hogan that day for the entire round, and he took one photo. He had this idea of this moment he wanted to capture. And he followed him. He kept, just, like, just kept waiting for that moment. And on this hole, most photographers actually stand in the front of Ben Hogan, in front of the golfer. But Ben Hogan's mystique was that he was distant. He was almost like an ascetic kind of mystical figure. And he set up in back, and he took this photo is one photo of the day, and it's an iconic photo. 
If you don't know anything about golf, one of the things you need to know about golf, and, and so Ben Hogan actually ended up winning the tournament. It was called a major tournament. He won many majors. He's one of the most successful, renowned golfers in the history of the game, and this photo is iconic. One of the things that people don't know, if you don't know golf, is that Ben Hogan was a struggling tour professional. He had a problem. At the most inopportune times, in the most pressure-packed moments, he would what they call snap hook his shots, which would just hit it, duck hook left. At the most inopportune times. Golf is about control. And he literally had an issue. He overcame this problem. And he, once he overcame this problem, he started winning tournament after tournament after tournament to the point that he literally was a legend in the game. And everybody asked him, what's your secret? To the point that he was offered by Life magazine, and this photo was in 1950, by the way, when he won the tournament. In 1954, Life magazine offered him $10,000 if he would reveal his secret. Everybody wanted to know, what is the secret of this man that went from a struggling tour professional to one of the most successful professional golfer? What is the secret? Yeah, that's leading up to it. <laughs> you see, people, people follow. I mean, he was literally like the icon of the day. And people wanted to emulate his success. That hat he wore, that was kind of his hat. People, his disciples would wear that hat. They would mimic his silent, stoic personality. They would continue wearing the hats long after it went out of style. He literally had disciples wanting to emulate him and wanting to know what the secret. And he wrote a book that alluded to the secret. And whether he actually revealed the secret, nobody really knows, but just the nature of the secret and the mystery just captivated everybody and still does to this day. People wonder what really was his secret. And the funny thing about it is, he, even if he did reveal it and people actually understood it, people probably couldn't even duplicate it. A tour pro, a struggling tour pro asked him for help with his swing because he was basically a legend in the game. And this was his answer of how to actually succeed. He said, dig it out of the dirt the way I did. Dig it out of the dirt. Ben Hogan was renowned for practice, for discipline, and that was his advice. This is what he said. This is a quote by him. When I first started on tour, I had a terrible problem with a hook, and I struggled constantly to learn to fade the ball. Finally, one day, I said to myself, Henny Bogan, his name was Ben Hogan, but he referred to himself as Henny Bogan. Henny Bogan, you have got to go home and correct this. Otherwise, you're never going to make a living. Mark O'Meara asked him a question. This probably was about 30 years ago. Asked Ben Hogan for advice. This is what he says. I taught myself piece by piece. I'd go to bed and think about some part of my swing and get up in the middle of the night to check it in the mirror. The next day, I'd try it on the practice tee. If it worked, I'd keep it. If it didn't, I'd get rid of it. 
It took me a while, but I got hold of what was right for me. What was his secret? I don't know if anybody will ever know. What I do know is this. He understood, and where he got to at this point was after years of finding out what was right for him. It was trial and error. There was no secret for Ben Hogan. He dug it out of the dirt, and everybody following Ben Hogan wanted to know, what is the secret? What is that one missing piece that I don't even really need to work for, but if I get that piece, I will transform myself in status, in success, in objective indicators of performance. That sounds like the church, actually. To me. I think we're all kind of looking for what's the secret? What's the secret? Ministry guy over there, power, anointing. Man, if I can just get him, lay hands on him, maybe get a piece of that. Sounds like the church to a degree. And I'm not saying it can't work. Here's the thing. I gave you just this long hair. It was a fascinating story. I was just reading about Ben Hogan. I used to golf a little bit. But there are certain elements of who Ben Hogan is. Ben Hogan did all of this in the flesh, mind you. This is soul strength that he exhibited, discipline, hard work. He steeled his will to systematically break down his swing and find what was going to work for him. That's what he did. And to a large degree, we all are like that. All of you, without exception, are like that. How can I say that? How can I dare attribute somebody like Ben Hogan and its mystical success to every single one of you? It's easy. Let's build this thing up for you so I can actually get, I am actually expecting you to do something today, and I'm not going to tell you till the end, but I'm expecting something from you today. I've been working with marketing people recently, and they're having me do marketing things, which is not what I do, and they keep referring to calls to action. I have one today for you, but let's start at the beginning. Who are you? When you were born, you were literally, as I said, you were God's handiwork. In Romans chapter 12, it speaks of literally the giftings, some of the giftings that everybody receives. And they're all different. These are what we confer to as motivational giftings. This is how you're wired. Some of your just grace that's put on your life. Everybody starts with that. How do I know this? I've got four kids. What I saw in them when they were young before two, I still see today. It hasn't changed. Some of the giftings that I saw, I was like, man, it's kind of not fair. You look at a two-year-old and he's doing things that you can't do. And you're thinking, woe is me. We've been having a little bit of fun. Um, Sam, he's been taking this AP psychology class and they have the Myers-Briggs personality types, Right? I don't know if you have anybody who's taken that test, right? I haven't, but I kind of know what I am. And I know most certainly that I'm not like what my sons are. But it's fascinating. 
That this is part of your wiring, your makeup. This is who you are. And there are some personality types that are more scarce than others. They're rarer. And I hope you don't say to yourself, man, I wish I was not the common type, but the more rare type. Why? You see, what I've learned in marketing and in persuasion is that one of the things that just naturally for hardwired people in the flesh captures the attention is scarcity. It's not because it's better, it just happens to be scarce. And it's like, oh, I want that. You're hardwired that way. That's your predisposition to what makes you tick. Scarcity as a marketing tool is designed to winnow its way into your framework. It's just pushing your button and causing you to respond. It's not better, but you're hardwired to desire something scarce. So you start with your motivational gifts. And what else do you have? You have your process. And God's role is in that. And what do I mean by your process? Look, you were placed, you didn't choose the family you grew up with or your circumstance, did you? You didn't. Now, you might say, well, I wish I could have choos- chosen something different. But the point is, you didn't choose. You grew up in a certain culture. In a certain generation. I think we can appreciate that the different generations we see represented here have dealt with a heck of a lot of different circumstances. And it's not about being better, it's just the fact that it's very different. Each of you grew up and have gone through a different path of life, haven't you? You can compare yourself with identical personality type and giftings, but you would have lived very different lives. Why? Because you have a different path. And the benefit I have now getting older is that I see the perspective and I see the impact of God's role in some of the path that I've taken. Some of the things that happened to me 30 years ago, I had no clue about, but now I can see that that was kind of a big deal, that that door that closed would have taken me in a radically different path. And that wasn't my choice. Each of you have had different battles and different victories, haven't you? Why can I say that? I mean, if you want to have a ministry moment in the church, it's pretty easy to say, well, who's struggling? 95% of your hands will go. The only other people that aren't putting their hands are the ones that know they have to pray for the people that are struggling. Right? See, I know the way church works. So what's my point? Your gifts and your history is part of the process that God is using that has fashioned you into your particular work of art. And if you say it's random, then you're arguing against Scripture because I already show you, showed you in the Amplified Version that part of the reason why you are a unique work of art because there's a unique task set aside, a good work for you. So yeah, you could say, woe is me, and that's fine. Life isn't easy. Certainly life isn't fair. But it's your life. And it's your path. And it's your struggle. And it's your victory. And it's for your literal accomplishment of the task that's been set aside for you before the beginning of time. There's no randomness here. You are a solution, and you are looking for a problem. You know, there's the old adage that, you know, to a hammer, 
everything's a nail, right? You've heard that saying. To a hammer, everything is a nail. And yeah, I got a prop here. Because people love props. You know, I actually had a Hogan one iron, but I sold it in part because I couldn't hit it. Got my toolbox here. Nothing to brag about because I'm not really good at using them. And Marie's probably better at it than I am. But I've got a hammer. The adage goes, it is a cute hammer. I got it at a YMCA auction. So you, all your criticism can go to your son. Yeah, you do. Anyway, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, doesn't it? We got a lot of different tools in this box. Look at this. You know what this is for? You know what this is? It's a deacon. This is a deacon. All right? WD-40. Right? Anything that squeaks, you put a deacon on it. You're good. So, let's go with this. It's a negative that people say that to a hammer, everything is a nail. But that saying is actually, we need to turn it around just slightly. Because see, in this world that we live, everybody's asking questions. You just may not even realize that every single person you encounter is asking questions. They got anxieties. They've got issues. You just watch the way they respond to you. Oh, you can see the issues. Everybody's got questions. You are the hammer. Now, is everybody a nail? No. What is my point? You have been fashioned in something like a hammer. And believe me when I say there is a nail in your future. There will be. Why? Because God said so. There is a nail in your future. When you encounter it, you're going to be like, oh, baby, here it is. I can just be me, and I'm going to hit that nail. It's there. That's your future. If you don't believe it, just wait. Now you might say, I don't feel like a hammer. Okay. You're still being fashioned. True. What's your qualification? Just you. You don't become you after you pass the test. You just happen to be you whether you like it or not. And the you that you are is a hammer. And there is a nail in your future. See, if I were to be a tool in this box, you know what I would be? I actually don't have it in this toolbox, and I don't know what that says about me. But you know what I'd probably be? Caution tape. I mean, come on, right? I mean, nobody says, yeah, let's bring the lawyers in. This would be great fun. <laughs> Yellow and black caution tape. Let's put it around. Everything slows down. Everybody is like, oh, man, okay, we got a problem here. Right? So I'm not even in the toolbox.
All right. Remember I said I have a call to action? You ready for it? Because there is one particular thing. I mean, I like laughs and all that. And believe me, I'm trusting God that you actually hear something that I say. Because I'll talk forever. And I just don't want to be two hours. Or at least feel like two hours. But I have a particular thing that I want from you. This is my call to action. And it is this. Open your ears right now. And I trust I have your attention. My voice is getting louder. I want your attention because you need to hear four words. And I want you to hear these four words. And I want you to hear my voice because my hope is that in your future, you're going to hear these four words resonate in your mind because it's going to change everything about what you do in your future. Your very attitude towards ministry, your very expectation of what your calling is, your very expectation of the impact you could have is going to be dependent upon you hearing these four words. Ready? Here it is. You are the answer. You are the answer. Whether you believe that or not, I want you to remember my voice saying those four words. That is the one thing I want you to take away from this, is to hear these words say, you are the answer, because you are gonna en- you're going to encounter a circumstance that could be very random, a person you meet, in your workplace, in your family, in your travels, it doesn't really matter. But that is going to be a unique circumstance where all of a sudden you as a hammer are going to find your nail and you were designed for that. You are the answer. I won't be that answer in that situation. Even if I was there, I probably wouldn't be that answer, but you will be. And if you are willing to embrace those four words, that is going to change everything that you know and expect and actually desire to do in the context of ministry. It will. Because if you're willing to accept those four four words, you know what's going to happen? You're going to say to yourself, "I, I don't know if I really know what to do. But if you're willing to embrace the responsibility that you are the answer, you know what? You are then going to dig it out of the dirt and you're going to find it. Because if you don't believe those four words, then what you're going to do is put yourself on the sidelines, sit in the pew, listen to another 300 messages, and nothing's going to change. But as soon as you embrace that simple idea of those four words, that you are the answer, it will change. That's my call to action, just for you to listen. And I know it's going to take maybe some time to work out, but something's going to shift. It's going to take from a talk and theory to you actually taking the responsibility of yourself where you will be the best you that you can be. Why? Because that's the design of God from the very beginning of time. 
the work of art performing the function that was originally intended to do, to accomplish, to succeed. You know, my last message that I preach, I believe, was basically, you got to win. And I'm kind of saying the same thing. You have to win. There is a task for you. God's given you everything you need, and you will grow in it. You will dig it out of the dirt, but you will win. Why? This is what God designed for you. He's not going to have you do anything you're not prepared to do. He's going to give you everything you need. But it all starts with you embracing four words. You are the answer. Amen.